Hi, and welcome to another Fran Science Art Immunology Series podcast. Now, just a quick disclaimer here. This podcast is not here to provide you with medical advice. It's intended to just provide you with fascinating facts about immunology that I know about. And it's really here for informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Never ignore professional medical advice in seeking treatment because of something you've listened to or something I've said. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a scientific doctor. If you think you have a medical emergency or something particularly related to allergy, go and see your GP. Go and see your doctor. So today's uh, podcast is, if you haven't already guessed it, based on the disclaimer, about allergy. So before we start on our lecture about allergy, uh, there are a few things to remember. One is that we have both our innate and adaptive immune systems, and there are podcasts on this. The innate immune system consists of non-specific general mechanisms that get rid of pathogens, and then we have our adaptive immune system. The adaptive immune system is very specific, and it involves our T-cells and also our antibody production. And the final thing to know and to remember is that antibodies exist as different isomers. So IgM, IgA, D, G and E. So knowing all of that, you can then um, move forwards and then we can understand how we get aberrations and differences with allergy. Now allergy has, since the 1960s, uh, been on a slow increase probably when it was first really starting to sort of uh, be looked at. There was a nice paper way back when in 2006 that showed that children with allergic disease, and this is asthma, eczema, hay fever even, um, that there was sort of, this was about 5% in the 1960s. And within 30 years, by the 1990s, um, levels of childhood allergic disease had risen almost and doubled so that uh, almost 10% of children had these three uh, allergic diseases in childhood. And by sort of another 10 years from that, the levels of childhood asthma had risen to almost 20%. Eczema follow was following sort of shortly behind that, with hay fever not changing that much. So clearly, people, more children, do actually have uh, allergies than they once did. So if you look at the variation in the global prevalence of asthma, you find that really it's not down to geography. So we find that the highest levels of allergy tend to be in countries such as North America, in the UK and in the Antipodes. So if you have examples somewhere like Europe, you find that there are different uh, levels of uh, allergy depending on which country you're in, literally, and, and it is defined by borders. If you look at Italy and France together, they are banks like knits together, and yet Italy has significantly less uh, allergy than France. If we then look at, I'm not very good at geography, but if you've got, if you have a look at Spain, and then that little bit, I think it's uh, Portugal, uh, you find that they, there again, even though you are geographically in almost the same place, you find that you have very different incidences of allergy. So it's not necessarily to do with your geographic location. Well, first of all, let's try and identify our different types of allergy. So you get allergic contact dermatitis and respiratory hypersensitivity, like allergic rhinitis and asthma. 
you can have xenobiotics so you you know a foreign substance so you know you can get uh, allergies to things like penicillin so you can get allergies to certain drugs which are associated with a systemic allergic reaction and this is actually sometimes reminiscent of an autoimmune disease you also can be and have allergies to food components and food additives and in adverse reactions you say you sometimes have these allergic responses so for example people are allergic to shellfish and uh, chocolate and peanuts that's the most common so your typical allergens are basically things the things you are, are against proteins so the proteins in pollen the proteins in house dust mites animal dander and foods and it's not known why some antigens really produce these responses um, and what we have to do is we measure different levels of circulating immune cells and then we can kind of deduce what is actually going on and unlike microbes it's not the same response so it's been shown that the types of response you get to an allergy it's an immune response but it's not quite the same as if you were going to fight a microbe now, allergy, people have known about allergies for a very, very long time, and they were properly studied, really properly studied first, uh, by a man called Karl Prausnitz, and he lived between 1876 and 1963, and he was kind of like the granddaddy of all things allergic. And the reason is because of an experiment he did with his best friend, Kuspner. And what they did was they were the people behind what is now known quite commonly as the PK test where if you inject an antigen if you if I don't know if you've ever been allergy tested to something but they take the inside of your uh, the skin of your forearm and essentially inject intradermally so under the skin levels of antigen and they see what happens if it goes red or not and if it does and you get these wheels and flares around it you essentially have an allergy against that particular antigen. Well, Karl Prausnitz and Kusner were essentially the people that created this, and this is pretty much how they did it. In 1921, Kusner, who was allergic to fish, he injected his own serum, Kusner's serum, into the skin of Prausnitz. Obviously, they were really good friends. Now, Prausnitz was allergic to grass pollen, but not fish, and what happened was that he, they transferred allergies and Prausnitz would notice that there would be an immediate wheel and flare at the site of passive sensitization. So whenever he ate fish, where that had been injected, um, he would then get a reaction from then on every time he ate fish, even though he hadn't been allergic. And this showed that the intact fish allergen could be absorbed into the circulation and you could passively transfer hypersensitivity so there was something tangible in your serum that could be transferred from person to person so a wheel is w-h-e-a-l-r w-h-e-a-l is uh, where you have a slight swelling and a flare is obviously the redness that surrounds it and this is the basis of the prausnitz kusner or pk test on the back of that, what I want to talk about today and discuss is what is allergy and why do we get it? The other thing I want to talk about is why some people have a selective allergy. So you know that if you have a cat, most people are, I'm really allergic to cats, that's why we can never have a cat. That may be true, 
but you will never be allergic to your own cat. Now, why does that happen? And then the next question is, well, if that's true, can we actually treat allergies? On the back of the Carl Prowsnitz um, Kusner test, the wheel and flare that was seen is actually dependent on something that is transferred. And what it is, is the transference of immunoglobulin E. And immunoglobulin E in the serum is a type of antibody and it is of the E isotype. So if you're unsure about antibodies, you can go back to the podcast on antibodies, which will tell you there are these different isotypes, M, A, D, G and E. And what happens is, is that this antibody, immunoglobulin E, that the body produces, binds to a type of cell called mast cells. Mast cells have a beautiful habit of releasing something called histamine. And I'm sure you are very familiar if you have ever taken antihistamines because of your uh, hay fever and whatever. So mast cells release histamine upon the immunoglobulin binding to them. And that is an immediate wheel and flare reaction. And then you have a sort of a longer term reaction followed about two to four hours later. This is a late phase reaction. And what happens then is that you have inflammatory white blood cells that include neutrophils, eosinophils and basophils. So not your normal cells that are fighting an infection, but these other ones. And also uh, a type of helper cell, a T helper cell called a T helper 2 cell. So in this particular uh, podcast, I'm going to be talking about the types of helper cells you have. And there are, in this instance, for this lecture, we're going to be talking about T helper 1 and T helper 2. And what we find is that in allergy, uh, this subtype of T helper cell, this T helper 2 cell, is the one that predominates. Normally, an antibody, an immunoglobulin G antibody, the one that we're most familiar with, will bind to a receptor. So you find that the um, antigen binding fragment, which is the sort of two arms of your antibody, will bind to the microbe and the FC fragment, the constant region, which is the legs of the antibody, that binds to an FC receptor. And that FC receptor will be found on a white blood cell. In an allergic reaction, the same thing happens but the allergic response involves IgE. We know that immunoglobulin E binds to mast cells and then you get all hell breaking loose. So that's pretty much what people try and stop when they give you antihistamines or you take your pyriton. They, you have medicine that can either block receptors that stops the effects of histamine or you can take medicines that stops the degranulation of the mast cell itself. So if you do happen to have lots of this immunoglobulin E, not just because you've had it injected into you, but you, for some reason you have it, then what happens is, is that if you have lots of it and then you have the presence of the allergen as well, you get uh, cross these these antibodies they start to cross link with each other the antigen binding fragments from one antibody will link with the antigen binding fragments of another uh, immunoglobulin e via the antigen and the fc fragments of these are going to be bound to a mast cell and what happens is so when you have immunoglobulin e bound to the mast cell uh, they're also cross-linked at the top you find that you get the release of histamine and other lipid mediators from the mast cell. 
The mast cell is full of pre-stored granules of all of these very vasoreactive substances. And then you get this immediate wheel and flare reaction. So you get vascular smooth muscle responses immediately where you get an increase in blood flow, you get itchiness and all that stuff. The cytokines that are released as well contribute to the late phase reaction by calling in other white blood cells to the area. I'm now going to tell you the reactions that occur upon having an activated mast cell. So your activated mast cell has an immunoglobulin E cross-linked with another immunoglobulin E by, via um, an antigen and it's also bound in the FC fragment to the mast cell. And upon the mast cell degranulating, you get the release of uh, biological amines such as histamines. And you also get the release of these lipid mediators from the arachidonic acid pathway. So platelet activating factor, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, if you're interested. The thing that these mediators can do is they create vasodilatation. So your blood vessels massively vasodilate. And this gives you the symptom of redness. They also create vascular leakage. So your endothelial cells that are lining your blood vessels are normally really, really tightly packed close together. These become super leaky. And this is very similar to the inflammatory response you get. Then what you have is these lipid mediators, these leukotrienes, plate activating factor. These travel to your lungs where they close up your airways and cause bronchoconstriction. And the other thing they can do is get you, uh, get you a hypermotile intestine, so you end up having a very, very uh, dodgy tummy. So some of the other cytokines which lead to the late phase reactants, uh, for example, the cytokines, lipid mediators, and other enzymes over a period of time will cause long-term inflammation, which always contributes to damage. It always causes damage. So uh, you've got short-term acute inflammation and long-term tissue damage as a consequence of these cytokines, lipid mediators and enzymes that are released from the mast cell as well. And because they are being released, if you're not careful, you can get this sort of positive feedback loop of things keep happening. Now, if we look at the eosinophils, eosinophils are a type of cell that are also being activated and these release very similarly cationic granule proteins and these can actually kill off cells and they also release enzymes like peroxidase like peroxide so imagine an enzyme really really super potent stuff and these all lead to tissue damage so all you have are these white blood cells that are there and you add your immunoglobulin to them and they immediately release everything they store which is quite a nasty mix of very potent, dissolving, activating um, mediators, which then attack you. And that's why you get the symptoms that you do. There are significant differences between uh, an allergen response and a response to fight a bacterium. Allergen re response is really involving mast cells, eosinophils and basophils. And your bacterial response doesn't. The bacterial response is involving things like neutrophils, which go around chasing things like Pac-Man and macrophages, which eat things like the Kraken. But mast cells, eosinophils, they just degranulate. And so there's already that big difference between what's being triggered with an allergen and what's being triggered with the bacterium.
if we then explore this as we, a bit further, we know that the type of antibodies you have in your circulation with an allergy are the immunoglobulin E uh, isotype, whereas in bacteria, it's the immunoglobulin G. Okay, that's so, so, so far so good. Then if we start to look at cytokines that are being produced in the bacterial responses, we have lots of TNF-alpha, interferon gamma, where in the allergen responses, we don't get those. We get things like interleukin-4, interleukin-5, interleukin-13. And then finally, if we look at the type of T cells that are being activated, it's our T helper cells, but not the T helper 1 phenotype. The T helper 1 phenotype is the one that is for inflammation and fighting bacteria. That one is not activated. It's the T helper 2 phenotype that is activated. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, these naive CD4 T helper cells for a minute. So we're going to roll back a little bit. Now our T helper cells are pivotal in activating our immune, uh, our adaptive immune system because they release cytokines and they cause the activation and proliferation of B cells and cytotoxic T cells. Now when you have a proportion of naive CD4 cells and naive T helper cells, they are a bit like pi. You have only a certain, a finite amount of them being produced and a proportion of them will go to be making T helper ones and a proportion of them will be making T helper twos and a proportion of them will be making something called T helper 17s. So far so good. We're not going to talk about T helper 17s because they're not relevant in today's lecture. When you're first born, it, there's a bias towards making T helper two. And when you find that you have an allergy to something, you have a lot more. If you're a really atopic person who has an allergy to absolutely everything, there's this real imbalance between the production of T helper cells. So this is a really big issue. So when we're talking, so the reason that that's important is because these T helper 2 cells are integral into activating our B cells. And what people think is going on, what scientists think is going on, is that when you have a first exposure to an allergen, you find that you activate your T helper 2 cells and the T helper 2 cells cause the stimulation of immunoglobulin E class switching in B cells. So your B cells, instead of making immunoglobulin G, they do this thing called class switching and they switch the classes of antibodies. So you go from an immunoglobulin G to an immunoglobulin E phenotype. And this um, idea of class switching, I will create a little podcast about, but I'll also go over briefly in the lecture, either this week or next week. As a consequence, B cells stop making immunoglobulin G and they start making immunoglobulin E. And they do this because of the cytokines to which they are exposed. So the thing that enables the different um, classes of antibody to be made is essentially cytokines. The cytokines uh, stimulate the immunoglobulin E. The immunoglobulin E production will bind to mast cells. Mast cells are just minding their own business. They're really not doing anything abnormal at all. What is abnormal here is the B cell production of the immunoglobulin. 
The immunoglobulin E binds to receptors for immunoglobulin E, which is exactly what they're supposed to do on these mast cells. A repeated exposure to the allergen enables a cross-linking of the antibodies that have bound to the mast cell. The mast cell then becomes activated and releases its mediators. The mediators include the, uh, the histamines and the plate activating factor and the arachidonic acid pathway, which give you your immediate hypersensitivity. And this is within minutes after repeat exposure. So if you do have, uh, you think you have an allergy to something, you could always find out by simply rubbing some of it on the inside of a very vascularized area of your lip. Uh, and in doing so, you might find that your lip swells up. It's something that would happen immediately. And then you know that you really shouldn't eat it. You've then got the late phase reaction. So we've got the production of cytokines, which essentially two to four hours after this repeat exposure to allergen, you start calling in other white blood cells that are really going to amplify and make everything worse. Now in the airways, one of the biggest problems with, you could say, oh, I can put up with some itching, but what happens is, is in the airways, what we have is a degree of airway narrowing. So we get mucosal edema and smooth muscle constriction. So you get lots of swelling and you get physical constriction of your airway bronchioconstriction. And this is created by the leukotrienes and the platelet activating factor. So these things, these leukotrienes come from the arachidonic acid uh, pathway again and these are terrible in your airways and they cause massive uh, bronchioconstriction. In addition you also get a load of mucus hypersecretion so your airways become really really uh, full of mucus and in addition to which you get epithelial cell shedding into the airways so your airways become really really bunged up. So you find that you can counteract this in the airways by, for example, giving something like chromalin. Now, chromalin stops the degranulation of the mast cells. You may see this. So if you ever look at Pyroton, have a look, and there should be some sort of ingredient, and this stops the degranulation of the mast cell. You can also give antagonists for leukotrienes, such as, you know, and these, these will block receptors, so leukotrienes just won't have any effect in the airways. And then finally, you can give a good dose of adrenaline or theophylline, which essentially is a cyclic AMP phosphodiester. It, it promotes cyclic AMP uh, inhibiting phosphodiesterases. So all of these things together can essentially cause uh, bronchial relaxation to counteract allergy. And in fact, that's what happens. That's why you have an EpiPen. An EpiPen itself is there to counteract the effects pretty much on uh, in your whole body because they will cause bronchial relaxation. One of the most dangerous things, there are many dangerous things, but one of the another one of the dangerous things of having these severe allergic reactions is that your airways close up and you can't breathe. So by giving, you have an EpiPen, you give a dose of uh, epinephrine, also known to us as adrenaline, it causes your airways to open up. If, however, you find that um, this is a bit too much uh, and you don't get rid of it, chronic inflammation. So people say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go to the hospital. I'm not going to get myself sorted out. Chronic inflammation might actually lead to permanent structural damage, um, such as smooth muscle hypertrophy. So actually the smooth muscles of your airways become so big that your airways 
can never really relax at all. And the same with your blood vessels. The blood vessels become hypertrophies so that they don't have the capacity to relax at all either. In addition to which you can get subepithelial fibrosis so that you find that um, the it just becomes like Weetabix or shredded wheat even so that you find that your airways are just completely fibrotic. So it's really, really important that you can treat this. And so if you give corticosteroids, it stops the production of cytokines because it stops the sort of protein sort of uh, production, transcription, translation. Now, one of the questions is, is why do we become sensitized then? Why, you know, it's, it's a really bad thing, but why does it happen? If so, there's an increase since 1960, so why has that happened? One of the things people believe is genetics. Uh, people within families would still have very similar allergies to things. Another one uh, is essentially your environment, that you can condition the mucosal tissues of your immune system to produce that cytokine interleukin-4 which, which predisposes a T helper 2 cell response so it could be that that actually impacts things or you can uh, essentially have a T helper 1 cell response which is actually absolutely defective so it could be any one of those things um, people think that that could lead to sensitization However, the other hypothesis that could also, in addition to all of that, uh, be important is the idea of infection. The prevalence of allergy was reported in 2002 in a New England Journal of Medicine paper to be inversely proportional to infection. And when we're talking infection, we're talking TB, hepatitis, measles, mumps, rheumatic fever. And you find that the prevalence of allergies and of autoimmune diseases sort of increased you know, inversely, inversely proportionally to that. And that maybe the prevalence of allergy has something to do with the degree of uh, hygiene to which we expose ourselves. And this leads to something called the hygiene hypothesis. So don't forget that we evolved um, a long time ago and essentially we're able to live in caves, scrabbling around in the dirt. Our immune system evolved in order to help us fight all of the infections that we had. I am not uh, advocating not washing your hands, by the way, after you go to the toilet, that sort of stuff. You do need to be hygienic. There's something that we did discover in the sort of 1800s about being hygienic. However, there is an idea that um, having early childhood infections, for example, uh, a proper bacterial infection, a proper cough, those sorts of things, provide a stimulus that essentially takes that skewed T helper 2 to T helper 1 ratio and evens it up and balances it out a little bit so that you actually make more T helper 1 proportion than you normally would. And what they think is in those westernized countries, if you remember uh, at the beginning where I said that they, you get a predominant number of uh, allergies in sort of North America, um, in sort of uh, the UK, in Australia, in those particular uh, sort of countries, the reduction in the number of childhood infections means that the immune system maybe lacks this T helper 1 stimulus and continues to maintain this T helper 2 cell bias, which therefore would result in this increased risk of developing allergy and asthma. Now, very interestingly, in addition to that, um, 
There's this thing to do with parasitic worms and hell nymph infections. In places where there are lots of hell nymph, these hell nymph worms, if you look it up on Google, are horrible. Um, so helminth worms, I really don't like the look of them. I can't find a nice picture of them anyway. Um, it's essentially where you have high levels of here, you find of these where you, you sort of have these lots of these parasitic worm infections, we find you get this low incidence of allergy. But you also find that they have an enormous T helper 2 biased immune response. And this kind of contradicts what I've just been saying about how having T helper 2 cells responses gives you allergy and stuff like that not where you have a parasitic worm infection and because of that they also have really high people who have these parasitic worm infections also have really high immunoglobulin e why don't those people get an allergic reaction we actually find the incidence of allergy is really really low so why is that and the answer is is that immunoglobulin e evolutionarily is specific for worms and parasites so e, immunoglobulin E preferentially binds to a parasitic worm than it will to an allergen like, I don't know, shrimp. So you never hear me say this much. There is an advantage of having a chronic worm infection. Not, I don't normally say it, but I am in this instance. And this is because parasites elicit the production of non-specific immunoglobulin E immunoglobulins. And what happens is, as a consequence of having all of these non-specific immunoglobulin E immunoglobulins, you find that you can saturate, saturate the receptors for the, you know, on eosinophils, for example. You saturate the receptors on eosinophils, which reduces our type 1 hypersensitivity. So if you've got our T helper 2s there, they're making lots of an interleukin 5, they're activating our eosinophils, the eosinophils with the immunoglobulin E on them are kind of, they're bound to our helminth worms. So our helminth worms are really quite useful. They attract the antigens on their surface, attract immunoglobulin E to, against which they've been raised. These then bind to the eosinophils, they cross-link, and the eosinophil releases its, its, its contents onto the, mast, on, onto the uh, helminth worm, not onto the airways. So it's very, very important. And this is associated with the release of a cytokine known as interleukin-10. So this is a really, really important one. Uh, interleukin-10 is a cytokine that is very, very important in fighting allergy. And you find that there are very high levels of interleukin-10 cytokine in chronic worm infections. And this is because uh, interleukin-10 in, induces T-regulatory cells. T-regulatory cells are a type of T-cell that switch stuff off really, really well. So interleukin-10 induces these T-regulatory cells. And in fact, people who are re receiving allergen immunotherapy, which is what I will talk to you about next week, actually have really high levels of interleukin-10 in their circulation. So that's why we have allergies and we can kind of um, sort of understand how it is that we can become allergic to things.
So that's the end of the lecture about the mechanisms by which we get allergy and how it's essentially quite different from a sort of us fighting uh, a bacterium. Next time I'll talk about our specific uh, allergen responses. So for example, not having an allergic reaction to your own cat. And I'll also talk about immunotherapies that are currently used and the, and the theories behind that. Just to finish off, I just want to say I really love immunology and these podcasts are not here to provide you with medical advice. It's really about informational purposes and what actually interests me about immunology. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. I'm not a doctor in that way. I'm a doctor. I'm a scientific doctor. Never ignore professional medical advice in seizing treatment because of something you've listened to or don't do anything because you think it's a good idea because you've listened to these podcasts. Again, really bad idea. Thanks for listening.